Well, it is always a privilege to open God's word together. And for the last few weeks, I've had the privilege of pronouncing that our Savior lives. This is our joy. We sang as we opened the service. It's not just an Easter message. That's the reason why we gather today, our Savior lives. And John 20, join me there in your Bibles, John 20, verses 1 through 18 is a reminder of that. It's a text that has tremendous apologetic power, apologetics being the defense of Christianity, and John 20 is John's defense of the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' resurrection being one of those main pillars of the gospel. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've structured our sermons around nine evidences, nine evidences that Jesus did rise again from the dead. Many of these evidences are eyewitness testimonies that John records, reminders that death could not hold Jesus, that Jesus truly and physically and historically rose again from this tomb. And we've looked already at the first six evidences through verse 10, John 21 through 10. There was confirmation of the right tomb. We saw the stone miraculously removed. We looked at the impossibility of a hallucination. We saw that three witnesses confirmed the empty tomb. Last week, we looked at Jesus' death cloths left behind and the shape of his body. We looked at a series of Old Testament scriptures that prophesied over a thousand years previous, prophesied of Jesus' resurrection. Six evidences that Jesus did indeed rise again from the dead. And so, if this were a court of law, if this was a matlock on TV, the prosecuting attorney would rest his case, The jury would return its verdict. The case indeed would be closed, but not for John. No, John has three more witnesses to call to the stand, three more evidences. These are in verses 11 through 18. It'll be in verse 18 that he closes his case. Again, these are three more evidences that Jesus rose again from the dead. Begin in verse 11. Let's read the text. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried away him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. As verse 11 opens, Peter and John have left the empty tomb. They have gone their separate ways. You remember back in verse two, as soon as Mary saw the displaced stone very early on Sunday morning, look at verse two, she ran and came to Simon Peter. She goes to his house and then they go to the other disciple. She said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. There's sorrow in Mary's words. There's angst in her heart. Look at verse three. Upon hearing this, Peter and the other disciple went forth. And the implication here is that they left Mary behind. They run, verse four, they run as fast as they can to the tomb. Mary's left in the dust. And once they arrived, they saw the stone gone. They see the empty tomb. They see Jesus' grave clothes only lying there. Again, as we looked at last week, John immediately believed that Jesus had risen. But there's someone else, Peter, and he's still trying to make sense of the evidence. John believes, Peter does not believe. Why? Look at verse nine. Because as yet, they will later, but right now, as yet, they did not understand the scripture referring to the Old Testament prophecies of the resurrection. They don't understand it. Spirit had not yet been given to open up their eyes, make the connection. They do not understand the scripture that he must, underline it, he must, for God to be faithful and true, he must, Jesus must rise again from the dead. But at this point, early Sunday morning, Peter and John have not made that connection. Again, the spirit had not been given. Only the spirit can open up our eyes to see the glory of those prophecies. We developed that last week. And so verse 10, the disciples went away again to their own homes. And John goes away believing the fact that Jesus rose again, not the implications, Old Testament implications, but the fact of it. But Peter goes away wondering, deliberating, unsure what to believe. So now with Peter and John gone, Mary finally arrives. She was a little bit slower than them. She arrives and notice in verse 11, she is weeping. She is weeping. This is the Middle Eastern death wail. This is the agonizing grief that has filled her heart. This is emotional anguish coming out in sobs and heaving. She's weeping. This makes sense. Remember who Mary is. Mary is the one, according to Luke 8, who had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. She's the one who supported Jesus' ministry for years. 
She's one of the women who stood by the cross. She watched Jesus die the most excruciating death. She's the one, again, in verse one, that came to the tomb at daybreak, as soon as she was able, Sabbath restrictions being lifted. So it's no wonder that her heart is broken. Her heart is broken. She has the pain of watching Jesus crucified and speared, but now that pain is compounded with the horror in her mind, the horror of Jesus' body being taken and desecrated further. And so continue verse 11. As she wept, she stooped and took one last hopeless look. She looks into the tomb. Maybe she was wrong. Maybe. Maybe in her grief she missed something. But as opposed to what Peter and John saw when they looked into the tomb, Mary, through her tears, verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting. Here's evidence number seven. Evidence number seven, two angels confirm Jesus' resurrection. Two angels confirm Jesus' resurrection. And there are two here because of the law of confirmation in Deuteronomy 19. The need for two witnesses, two angels. They're dressed in white, not only showing their righteous purity, but also showing that there's no need for Mary to mourn. Black are the clothes of death. White are the clothes of life. And, and Luke, in his recording of this, calls their outfit dazzling, gleaming, flashing. It's a supernatural clothing. These are supernatural beings. Let's bring the other gospels into play. Matthew records the appearance of another angel, a different angel. Matthew's angel was sitting on the stone earlier in the morning after the earthquake, after the stone was moved. That was a different angel than the ones described here. Matthew's angel was sent to announce Jesus' victory over death, specifically to the guards. That's the angel that caused the soldiers, Matthew 28, to shake for fear of him. They fell to the ground as dead men. There's fear. But these angels, John's angels, were sent specifically for Mary, not the guards. They're gone. But for Mary to bring her comfort, not fear. Mark's account focused on one of these angels, same angels, but one of these angels. He described the angel as a young man wearing a white robe. Why? Because angels, whenever they appear, appear as people. You can see that even back in the Old Testament, human form. And the purpose of these angels appearing now is clear, their presence signifies that God's power has invaded this tomb. God's power has invaded this tomb. That there's no natural explanation for Jesus' body being gone. That the tomb is no longer under the control of the Jewish leaders or the Roman soldiers. No, this is God's tomb. 
belongs to him and his son because of the father, the son and the spirit. God's son is not there. This is God's tomb, his power. Now notice the detail John records, detail of where, where these angels were sitting in the tomb. This is by design. This is not some random detail. Verse 11, they were sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. So why does John record this detail? For two reasons. The first is to show that Christ has been accepted back to God. It's a great contrast. Well, on the cross, Jesus was crucified between two sinners. We read that. Look back at John 19, 19, 18. They crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. It was symbolic. Symbolic of Jesus being the chief sinner, symbolic of sin being credited to his account. The reason why God is pouring out his wrath on his son. But the contrast now in the tomb, Jesus' grave clothes lie empty, but they're between two angels, not two sinners anymore. It's a graphic picture that God is no longer treating his son as a sinner. Sin is no longer credited to his account. It's been paid, paid in full. The father has accepted his son back to himself. But there's a second reason, second reason these two angels are sitting on each side of Jesus's empty grave clothes. It's an Old Testament reason. There's Old Testament imagery. If you remember throughout this entire Passion Week, John has Old Testament imagery over and over again. Well, here it continues with the tomb. Remember back, remember back to the Day of Atonement sacrifice, Leviticus 16, when the priest once a year would take the blood of a slain sacrifice, he would enter the Holy of Holies, sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat. That was a golden cover on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a yearly ceremony. It was a reminder Reminder to the people of their sinfulness, God's holiness. It's a reminder that before God could ever accept a sinner to himself, the wages of sin must be paid. There must be a sacrifice. Blood must be spilt. Wrath must be appeased before God's mercy could be given and experienced yearly tradition here. Well, what sat on each side of that golden mercy seat? Listen to Exodus 25. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim, two angels of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, at the foot and at the head. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. 
Here's a picture of what that looks like on the screen. These are two angelic guardians, supernatural sentinels, symbolically guarding God's presence. Two chiseled cherubim, warning sinners, even the high priest who enters, warning sinners that they must not approach a holy God without a sacrifice. It's a special warning. It's a reminder that God's mercy cannot be assumed, cannot assume God's mercy and grace. This is a graphic picture of holiness and warning and sacrifice and mercy. Well, fast forward now. That's a shadow of what's to come. Fast forward. What do we see in the empty tomb? We see God's new mercy seat. His new mercy seat with two angels. They're not chiseled in gold. No, they're sent from heaven, sent by God himself. And he sits them on each side of God's own sacrifice, symbolizing that the blood, that the blood of every previous sacrifice sprinkled within the Holy of Holies, that all that blood, all those sacrifices actually pointed to the death of his son, Jesus. We see that God's mercy now, God's mercy is only granted to those who rest on the crucified and resurrected Jesus, the one who's not in the tomb. It's a picture that God's anger against sin can only be exhausted through the work of his son. There's no other savior, no other sacrifice. It's all symbolic. It's the same symbolism as the veil in the temple. Remember, that was torn in two when Jesus died. John does not record that. Matthew records it, Mark records it, John doesn't. Why? Because John records this. Instead of recording the veil in the temple being torn, he allows us to see behind the veil into the new holy of holies where God's saving mercy can be found. It's only found in his son, that sacrifice and that resurrection. And notice these angels are not guarding God's holiness, like those chiseled angels on the ark. No, these angels have been sent to comfort one of God's children. Again, symbolic access to God has been opened there's no warning here. No, this is now invitation. Which is why the angels in verse 13, they said to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? In other words, Mary, there's no reason for you to sorrow. It is true, Jesus is gone, but it's not because anyone stole his body. In fact, Luke records the angel saying this, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. Mary, remember his words, remember his promises. Saying that the son of man, the all glorious son of man who will return, son of man in Daniel 7, that the son of man 
He must be delivered in the hands of sinful men. Yes, he will reign, but he must be betrayed, crucified. He must be delivered in the hands of sinful men. That's what he promised. That's what happens. And crucified. You saw that, Mary. But don't forget the last part of the promise. And on the third day, he would rise again. That's what's happened. There's no reason for you to weep, Mary. Everything has happened from betrayal to death to now resurrection. Everything that has happened is a part of God's sovereign and saving and redeeming plan. It's perfect. And remember, Jesus told you all of it. Why are you weeping? Let's bring some application here. I love how J.C. Ryle puts it. Can all relate to this? Listen to what he writes. We see in these verses that the fears and sorrows of believers are often quite needless. We are told that Mary stood at the sepulcher weeping and wept as if nothing could comfort her. Yet all this time, her tears were needless. Her anxiety was unnecessary. Can you relate to that? Ryle makes it personal. What thoughtful Christian can fail to see that we have here a faithful picture of many a believer's experience? How often we are anxious when there's no just cause for anxiety. Two-thirds of the things we fear in life never happen at all. And two-thirds of the tears we shed are thrown away and shed in vain. Let us pray for more faith and patience and allow more time for the full development of God's purposes. Let us believe that things are often working together for our peace and joy, which seem at one time to contain nothing but bitterness and sorrow. Mary's weeping. She does not realize that God has worked. Certainly we can relate to that. We know it to be true. We read the promises. And yet so often we respond like Mary does in verse 13 and taking Mary here despite the angel's words, the angel's confirming that God's plan is perfect, is playing out as designed. Regardless of that, Mary does not even recognize them as angels yet. We're not told why. Could be because of the depth of her grief. Could be because of the horror of her fears. At the very least, it is because, at least in part, she's not expecting to see any angels. That's not common. And so all Mary can say, still in sorrow, still anxious, verse 13, why are you weeping? Because, here's why, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Leads into evidence number eight. Evidence number eight, a woman is the first to see the resurrected Jesus. A woman is the first to see the resurrected Jesus. This is when the story gets good. Verse 14. 
when she had said this, she hears someone moving behind her. So she turned around and saw Jesus. But again, maybe because of her eyes filled with the tears, maybe because the resurrection is the farthest thing from her mind, maybe because Jesus is hiding his identity. He'll do that later, wrote to Emmaus. Whatever the reason, Mary did not know that it was Jesus. And before he identifies himself to Mary, Jesus repeats the angel's question. Woman, polite greeting of the day. Woman, why are you weeping? Again, there's no time for sorrow. But then Jesus adds this, it's probing her faith. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Think deeply, Mary, about the one who's not in the grave. Mary, are you sorrowing over the one who showed his power over death? Is that who you are wailing about? Think of the raising of Lazarus, the who of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter. Are you looking in the tomb of the dead for the one who promised to rise again, the one who called himself the life? Is that who you're looking for? Are you looking for the one you believe to be the son of God? This is a mild rebuke to Mary. Who are you seeking? Remember who Jesus claimed to be. Remember what he promised Mary. And again, we can bring application to us today. Yes, Mary was devoted to Jesus. And yes, Mary loved Jesus. And yes, Mary had faith in Jesus. But what do we see here? We see that her view of Jesus was not big enough. And I'll go out on a limb and say this, no matter the faith that you have in Jesus, your view of Jesus is not big enough. He is so much more glorious than we think him to be. Mary thought that death had won. She thought that the tomb was too much for Jesus to overcome. And again, for us, so often this is how we respond to our Savior's promises. We doubt his words. We distrust his power. We forget his promises. Even though Mary loved Jesus, she was searching for a dead body, not the victorious Lord Jesus claimed to be. And so, verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener, it makes sense logically. Only gardeners would have been here at the early hour tending the grounds, and so she thinks he's the gardener. She thinks maybe he saw what happened. Maybe he's the one who the religious leaders paid to take Jesus' body, verse 15. So she says to him, sir, if you have carried him away, that phrase carried away, it's used in funeral context, disposing of a dead body. Here's Mary's question. Sir, if the religious leaders, because of their anger, that Pilate let Joseph and Nicodemus bury Jesus in honor, they're angry about that, no doubt. If they, in their anger, paid you to dispose of Jesus' body in a common grave to take him where the other criminals were thrown... Can you, verse 15, tell me? Tell me that. 
Tell me where you have laid him. Tell me where that grave is. And I will take him away. She doesn't want Jesus' body desecrated any further, even if that means becoming ceremonially unclean, touching the dead body, taking away herself. Compare this to verses 8, 9, and 10. Like Peter, Mary has seen all the evidence. She's seen all the evidence. In fact, she's seen more when you add the angel's testimony, but still she does not believe that Jesus rose again. It's the farthest thing from her mind until, verse 16, until Jesus said to her, it's no longer impersonal now. It's no longer woman. But now Jesus uses Mary's personal name. This is a name that Jesus had used countless times throughout his ministry, speaking to her. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. John 10, the good shepherd calls his own sheep by what? By name. We do not have a cold, uncaring, impersonal shepherd. No, we have a savior who died for us personally, who resurrected for us personally, and even today personally calls us out of sin and into his family. He knows our name. So the transition now is from a mild rebuke to now a tender greeting. And just as Jesus had promised earlier in John 10, when he calls his sheep by their names, his sheep will hear his voice and follow him. Which is exactly how Mary responds. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, it means teacher. There's sorrow and grief it's been turned now to joy, to relief. So if you are keeping track at home, you can now cross off the impersonation theory. That's gone. Mary recognized Jesus's voice. This is the same Jesus. In fact, in verses 24 through 29, later in the chapter, we'll see the resurrected Jesus still bearing his crucified scars. This is no imposter. And Mary's response, Raboni, would have been what she called Jesus throughout his ministry. It's a restored relationship. This is a term of respect. It's an acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship over her life. It's an acknowledgement of lordship over her life. Connect it back up to verse 13. Notice where Mary says, they have taken away my Lord. Even in death, Mary considered Jesus to be her master. Well, here it's the same. She gladly confesses Jesus to be her teacher. She is his pupil. What he says goes. Jesus is still her master. She is his disciple. This is a confession of devotion she has towards Jesus. It's a confession of submission to Jesus and his words. His words are the authority over her life. You and you alone are my teacher. 
Let's get back to the main point, though. Why is Jesus' appearance specifically to Mary? And mark this, every gospel record has Mary being the first person to either see the angels at the tomb or the resurrected Jesus. It's Mary. Why is this appearance to Mary powerful, irrefutable evidence that what John has recorded is historically accurate? Why is it evidence that Jesus did indeed rise again from the dead? Why? Why is this so powerful? Here's the answer. Because no Jewish author, mark it down, no Jewish author making up a story so outlandish and absurd as a supernatural resurrection from the dead, no Jewish author would ever have the first witness to this pinnacle event of the gospel be a woman. Never. It's the patriarchal culture of the day. Mary in that day is literally the worst witness you could call to the stand. For one, it's because she was a woman, again, in that day. And according to Jewish judicial law, her testimony was inadmissible into a courtroom. Listen to the Mishnah. The oath of testimony is practiced with regard to men, not women. There's no testimony from them allowed. Listen to another rabbi. It is better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered by a woman. But even if Mary's testimony was allowed into evidence, let's just say it was. Think of her past, her previous demonic possession. That would have tarnished any testimony she offered. In that culture, worldly speaking, she is not the witness you want to be on your side. She's more of a hostile witness than an expert witness. If you were making up this story, who would be the first witness? Who would it be? Peter, right? Peter. But according to verses 8, 9, and 10, Peter doesn't even believe at this point. One commentator puts it this way, if the resurrection was indeed an elaborate concoction of the early Christian community, then Mary was a bad choice if their story was to have credence. The only logical conclusion is that John calls Mary to testify. Again, all the gospel writers say the same. John calls Mary to testify simply because her testimony is genuine. There's no other answer, no other reason she really did see and hear what she says she did. It's evidence number eight. A woman in that culture is the first to see the resurrected Jesus. Leads into evidence number nine. Evidence number nine, Jesus is physically alive. Jesus is physically alive. Alive, And so at this point, you can cross off the last wrong theory that's out there. It's the spiritual resurrection theory. It's the idea that Jesus only resurrected in his spirit. His body stayed. Cross that off. All the gospels are clear. They agree. Christ's resurrection was a physical resurrection. It is necessary and it is key if our resurrection is going to be a physical resurrection. 
Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, stop, cease clinging, holding on to me. And Mary's joy to see Jesus, but mark this, also in her fear, in her fear of losing Jesus for a second time, Mary grabs a hold of Jesus, most likely his feet, clutches him as tight as she can. She doesn't want him to go. Now, some have taken Jesus' words here to mean that there was something dangerous, something dangerous about Jesus' appearance at this point. Some have taken it to show that Jesus had not yet received his resurrected body, but that can't be the case. Why, Matthew 28, women will touch Jesus' feet in worship and not be rebuked. Exactly what Mary's doing here, but not be rebuked. Even in, later in John 20, Jesus will tell Thomas, touch my hands, touch my body. What's going on here then? Why stop clinging to me? Well, the problem is on Mary's end, not Jesus's. Mary is holding on to Jesus in fear, afraid that Jesus is about to leave her again. This is why Jesus assures her, it's okay, Mary, to let me go. Why? Verse 17, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, not referring to entering his Father's presence after he died. That's what Jesus did. He gave up his spirit into your presence. He goes. But Jesus is talking about his coming ascension. That will happen later, 40 days from now. That will happen later when you will physically ascend to glory. So Jesus says, Mary, loosen your grip on me. Yes, I will soon ascend. That is true. It's what I've said throughout my entire life. John 7, I go to him who sent me. That will happen, Mary. John 14, I go to the Father. John 16, I go away. That will happen, but it's not now. It's not now. You will see me again. Stop clinging to me. But there's another reason why Mary needs to let Jesus go. And it is because she has an important role to play in redemptive history. And again, put this in its cultural patriarchal context. Finish the verse here. Let me go. Why? Because you must, verse 17, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend. This is the note of victory. Tell them that the grave could not keep me. Tell them that the Father has not abandoned me. I will be returning soon. I'll see you shortly. I ascend. There will be a time where I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God, and amazing, again, in that culture, Mary is the first ambassador, the first missionary sent to declare the resurrected Jesus. Stop clinging to me. You have work to do. Mary, you need to go and tell the apostles not only that the tomb is empty. You've already done that. You need to go and tell them something else. You need to go and tell them that I am alive and that you've seen me. 
But Mary, don't stop there. Don't stop there. You also need to tell them that they are forgiven for their desertion. That I forgive them. Go and tell them that they are, verse 17, my brethren. It's an amazing statement. That's grace upon grace. Tell them that they are my brethren. Back in John 15, Jesus told his apostles, no longer do I call you slaves, I now call you friends. Let's take it deeper though now. Not only are you friends, you are brethren. Tell them that they are a part of my family. They are part of God's family and will always be a part of this family, even though they fled in fear. Tell them and call them my brethren because all that is mine is theirs. Verse 17 again, my father, all that is mine is theirs. My father is your father and my God is your God. The love that the father has for me is the same love he has for you as much as that can be true of a created being. All that I have is yours. Just let it sink in. If you have come to Christ, resurrected Christ in saving faith, and we belong to the same family as Jesus. And we share, amazingly, we share the same standing before God that Jesus enjoys, again, as much as a created being can. And why is this true? Why does Jesus make this pronouncement? It is because the Father has answered his prayer. The end of John 17, that high priestly prayer, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that, so that the love with which you loved me, your love for me, may be in them. My Father, Jesus says, is your Father. My God is your God. Do you think they needed to hear that? They're thinking back. They know what happened. This is Jesus promising his apostles to us by extension, forgiveness and acceptance. Jesus promising fatherly care and eternal love, even though his apostles had deserted him. And quite frankly, even though we ourselves have sinned against him. So Mary, stop clinging to me. You have a message of victory to deliver and you have a gospel of reconciliation and hope to proclaim. Which is exactly what we see Mary do in verse 18. Mary Magdalene in Luke 24 says that there's other women, so they all go now. And they came announcing to the disciples, all of them. She went to each of their homes. And she says this, I have seen the Lord. Don't miss that title. I have seen the Lord. This is the Christian confession of faith. This is the confession of Christ's deity, his godness. 
I have seen the Lord over all. I've seen the destroyer of death. I have seen the one who is victorious over sin and Satan. And then verse 18, and she also said all that Jesus had said to her. The worst possible witness in that culture becomes Jesus's choice servant to proclaim his resurrection. So let me tell you this, we have hope ourselves to proclaim the gospel. So often, so often it comes to this and we think so uh, myopically, so worldly, we think if only, if only the celebrity could come to Christ and so many would believe, right? Here's 1 Corinthians 1. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's how God works. And the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen. He chooses the Marys to do this. Why? So that no man may boast before God. It's all about his glory, not ours. This is how the gospel spread through men and women who are weak and despised by the culture. And yet we are Christ's choice servants to announce his death and his resurrection. Why? So that all glory goes to him. Here are nine undeniable evidences that Jesus rose again from the dead. And our task, our task is the same as Mary's. We must proclaim a resurrected Savior. Don't leave him on the cross. We must proclaim a resurrected Savior and also proclaim that through faith in him, through faith in him, enemies can be made brethren. And sinners can be made sons. And God's saving mercy can be experienced by all who confess Jesus to be their teacher, to be their Lord. Father, you have given us a task. And we confess that we need more boldness in this. And we need forgiveness for where we have failed. And yet, what have we seen in this text? There is forgiveness from you. We thank you that we are Christ's brethren. We are your children. May we remember the forgiveness that you have granted. May we continually cling the righteousness that you have credited to our account, and may we be bold, may we be bold to express this gospel and this Savior who has rescued us from our sins and given us eternal hope. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.